Well, if you pay any attention to sports, you probably have heard the story of the University of Colorado Buffaloes and uh, Coach Deion Sanders, primetime. Do you know who that is? If you've been into sports at all in the last couple of weeks, you probably know about him because he's this brand new coach that showed up to this, this organization that's been around for like a hundred years, and this organization is not a very good one, in fact. They, last year, their, their record in college football was 1-11, right? That's, uh, that's winning one game and losing 11 games. I, that's, a pretty, that's a pretty bad team. But all of a sudden, you've got these transfer students, um, two people with the last name Sanders, who show up at this school, and all of a sudden, their dad follows, and if you don't know who Deion Sanders is, he was a very, very famous football player and baseball player. Uh, I wrote it down. He played 14 NFL seasons, and he played nine Major League Baseball seasons at the same time. So this guy was a crazy athlete, belonged to two teams at the same time. There's stories of him playing college football in the... Or, uh, NFL football in the morning on Sundays, and then going and playing afternoon games in the same city for teams that he's a part of. So this guy was crazy, Deion Sanders. He's called Primetime because he was the guy who always came in clutch. He's called Primetime, right? So he shows up to this new organization, this old organization, he's new to it, and he changes the culture immediately. All of a sudden, once he's a part of it, now not only do you have his sons who are like amazing college football players, you also have all these people who want to transfer and be a part of this school. So last night, the biggest game that was going on was Colorado versus Colorado State, and Colorado was losing by a lot, and all of a sudden, they make this huge comeback, and they win in double overtime, and everybody in the sports world has their eyes on one place, and they keep using this word, it's the word prime, because that's his nickname. If you notice, why did this football team get good all of a sudden? Is it just because the Suns were there? Is it just because? Well, not just because. All those things play a part, but here's why that whole organization turned around in a matter of like three weeks. One word, influence, because of influence. Because someone went in there and changed it, like changed the whole organization, changed the whole thing because he was in charge and because all these people around him bought into what he was doing. Now, all of a sudden, they think they're the best and they're a team. Remember, last year, they won one game and lost 11 games, but they think they're the greatest team on the planet because of influence. I want you to think, what kind of influence are you supposed to have on the people around you? What kind of influence do you have on the people around you? Those are two different questions. First question was, what kind of influence should you have on the people around you? The second question is, what kind of influence do you actually have on the people around you? I want you to think, what kind of impact do you think Jesus would want you as a Christian to have on people in your life? Right? If you're a disciple of Christ, and you're someone who wants to follow what Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount, what kind of impact do you think he wants you to make? Well, he's going to explain that in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. He's going to use two images, and he's going to say, as a disciple, you are salt, and then he's going to say, you are light. He's not telling them to be salt. He's not telling them to be light. He's saying, as a Christian, that's what you are, so our job is to be what we actually are. Very interesting thoughts, and I want you to open up to Matthew chapter 5 to see this together. Super important passage. It's probably a familiar one to some of you. You've heard people say this, that we're supposed to be salt and light in the world. And maybe the first time you heard that, like, I'm not exactly sure what that means. Well, that's what we want to study this morning, because this is a very important thing that Jesus says at the beginning of this new section. You might notice on your worksheet, the top, the heading, is different. We're starting a new series. I call it True Community, because what we're going to start to hear about is what kind of things should Christians 
disciples of Christ, be doing in the world that God has put you in. This sermon kind of stands at the head of everything that we're about to study because this is the kind of impact that we're supposed to make in the world. This is actually, as you get all the Christians together, this is the kind of community that we're supposed to be. He's going to explain this in this passage. Next week, he's going to say very important things about what it means to understand how God's word in the Old Testament plays a part in the kind of community we should be. And then for the next six weeks after that, he's going to take an Old Testament principle that was perhaps misunderstood by the Jews of his time, and he's going to apply it to what kind of people Christians should be. But this stands at the beginning. There's really one command here, and it doesn't come until verse 16. There's two figures that he says. A Christian is like this. A Christian is like that. And if those two things are true, here's the kind of person you should be. Those are kind of going to be our three points today, but let me just uh, read it first. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. He starts off by saying, you are the salt of the earth. So it's interesting when you read that phrase, you are the salt of the earth. Before, in the Beatitudes, he was saying, blessed is the person who's this. Blessed is the person who's that. But then if you remember, if you look up at verse 11, what word does he start to use? He doesn't say just general people. Now he starts saying, blessed are you. So now he's talking to the individuals, in particular, the disciples of Christ that he's talking to. In verse 11, he says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Okay? So he's changed from just giving general things about people to now talking directly to the disciples, and you should feel like Jesus is turning his attention to you if you're a disciple, and you need to listen to what he says to you. So he says, you are the salt of the earth. Here's the problem. What does that mean? What does salt do? Well, scholars look at this, and one commentary I read says, there are 11 different possibilities about what salt did in the ancient world. There's 11 different ones, okay? Most people land on it doing one of two things, and I think this is pretty accurate. In the ancient world, there were no refrigerators. There were no refrigeration trucks. Like, if you want to take meat from somewhere and eat it somewhere else, maybe, let's say, a day or two later. Imagine you don't have a refrigerator. Imagine ice is, you know, you don't, can't make ice. You can maybe find ice in the wilderness. But if you're not living in a cold place, how do you preserve things? Well, what you would use in the ancient world is salt. And being something that is a preserving agent, it also does another thing. It purifies whatever is going on there. So, like, if you had a piece of meat that you wanted to eat tomorrow, how would you preserve it? Well, you needed salt to preserve that thing from getting worse. Or if you had something that was rotting or corrupting, uh, like um, if you had like a dead body that you're trying to, you know, maintain for a little bit before you put it in the ground to get it to stop stinking. You know what you do? Put salt on it. It it takes something that's corrupt and it like slows the corruption. It stops the corruption. So when he says you're the salt of the earth, I think that's what he's going to be getting at. Look what he says next. He says, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? So if salt can no longer do what salt does, well, then how can you make it salty again? Like, how can you restore what's gone out of it? Okay. So if what Jesus is saying here, and I think it is, is that salt of the earth means that God's people in the world, in a very corrupt world that's getting worse and worse, we should be like what salt did in the ancient world. Your presence and your influence in places should make it better. It should keep sin from taking over your football team. It should keep sin from taking over your little corner of your world. The fact that you're there, you are fighting against the corruption and the sin that's going to take place there. If we remove you, 
from that situation as the Christian, and maybe you're the only Christian in a, in a, on a team, you're the only Christian in a class, what happens once you're gone? Well, the idea is it's going to get more corrupt. Your influence there should keep it being more pure and more preserved from evil. But he says if the salt has lost its taste, which even that, the, the phrase lost its taste is actually, in Greek, it's the word to become foolish. So they translate it lost its taste because what does it mean for salt to become foolish? Right? Like what does that mean? I, salt doesn't think or talk, so salt can't be foolish. So the translator's like, okay, what does this mean? It, I think what it means is if salt is no longer used for what it's supposed to be used for. If you imagine salt in the ancient day, it's supposed to be used for, I don't know, preserving stuff. Let's say instead of preserving all that stuff, that uh, it, it gets caught up with the kids' dirty diapers, right? And the kids put it, dump it on the ground, and they step on it, and their little grimy toes get on it. I'm just imagining kind of what happens at my house when my kids don't get a bath every once in a while. Um, but they make kind of stuff on the ground kind of gross. They, they slobber on the toys. But imagine you do that with salt. You drop the salt on the ground. Now it's all dirty. Now imagine you step on the salt. You imagine you take the salt and now it's mixed with a bunch of dirt. The idea is now you can't use that salt to preserve things and make it more pure because the salt isn't pure anymore. Once the salt isn't pure, now it can't do what it's supposed to do. So Jesus is saying, if disciples are not pure, if disciples are not themselves uncorrupt, if they're not righteous, then how could you expect them to influence other people not to be righteous? He says, your whole point in the world is to be salt. If you're a Christian, one of your functions in this world that Jesus has put you in there for, the reason you're in your family, the reason you're on your sports team, the reason you're in your classes, one of the reasons God has sovereignly put you there is to keep it from being as evil as it would be if you weren't there, that you would have influence, like we said at the beginning. He says, the saltiness is gone. It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. That is a wild statement. If you think about what Jesus just said about disciples, he says, if a disciple is no longer salt in the earth, read what he said again, it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. He just said, you are the salt of the earth. Oh, but if you're not salty, there's no longer a use for you. Like, that's a, that's a big claim. I don't want you to miss what Jesus is saying there. He's talking to people he loves. He's talking to disciples. But he says, look, if you live just like everyone else, if you sin just like everyone else, if you are not a preserving agent on your, on your football team, if you're not a preserving agent on your basketball team, if you are not helping your whatever class, whatever your situation, if you're not helping it become more righteous and pure, then worthless is the word he uses, good for nothing. Right? That's a huge, huge claim. It should be a warning for us. Verse number 14, he gives another image. He says, you are the light of the world. So not only use salt in the earth to preserve it, to make it more holy, you're also light in the world. He gives another analogy. He says, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So he doesn't say you shouldn't hide a city on a hill. He's just telling you what light does. Light is seen. You cannot hide light. If it's there and if it's shining, people are gonna notice. If you are living for Christ, like you should, people are going to notice. You can't really hide it. You could try to hide it. Look what he says next. He says, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all that are in the house. So another analogy about light. He says, okay, if you light a lamp, which remember, no electricity, 
No light bulbs, no fluorescent lights, no spotlights, none of that. How do you get light in a house at night? You've got to burn something, right? Candle or uh, some kind of lantern, right, back in the ancient world. You take a lamp that's lighting up your whole living room, because remember, once it's dark, it's dark, right? You put a basket over that, it defeats the purpose of light, okay? Do you see that both of these analogies are the same and that Jesus is saying, if you ruin the purpose that you have in existence as a disciple, to be salt. If you're not salty, well then, like you're not doing anything good. You're not even helping. In fact, perhaps you're hurting. Just like Christians who don't act like Christians, they're actually harmful to the cause of Christ. They're hypocrites, and the world can look at hypocrites and say, I'll never become a Christian because they're all hypocrites. There's plenty of people who profess the name of Christ today who are not salty, and the world looks at them and says, they're just hypocrites. I don't want, I'm not attracted to that at all. And there's also people who are Christians today, who are not lights, or they are lights, but they try to go in hiding. They try to hide their Christianity. They try to fake people out so that nobody asks you about church or about God, or, and they try so hard to avoid it and to put that lamp under a basket. And he says, that doesn't make any sense. That goes against the purpose to which you exist. So then in verse 16, he gives a command. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others. So that, two things, they may see your good works, number two, that they may give glory to your Father who's in heaven. So he says, here's the command. All right, you're salt, you're light. So here's what you need to do because of that. Let your light shine before others. In other words, let people see the good that you're doing. Don't hide it. Don't go underground. As my youth pastor said, don't try to be a camouflage Christian. Don't try to be a Christian who nobody asks you about it. Like some of you, that's your daily experience at your school campus. Sometimes you go with some kind of anxiety because you're just hoping nobody's gonna ask you about God or about Jesus or about church. You're just like, you can even be praying, like, oh, I hope nobody asks me. That's like the opposite orientation. That's the opposite thought process that we should have as Christians. So he says, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good works. Right? What does it mean to be a light in the world? It means that you're doing good in the world. You are actually preserving like salt, you're actually doing good works, like Jesus says here, and people are seeing it. That your Christianity is not a private thing. That you just don't have a private relationship with you and Jesus. Jesus says, that's not, your, that's not how it works, right? If you, if you do have a private relationship with you and Jesus, then you're missing the point of what Jesus says. Because he says, your relationship with me is not private. You're supposed to be a light in the world so that they may see your good works. That's the first thing. And then what's the next thing they're supposed to do? Give glory to your Father who's in heaven. I want to show you that these verses say that if you live a good life, if you choose to not sin with the crowd, you will stand out for sure, totally. People will notice it, and furthermore, some people will end up worshiping God for your good works. The fact that you did good, they're going to say, thank you, God, that that person lived righteously. You might say, wait a minute. Didn't we just say in the last sermon that some people are going to persecute you? Yes. So this is the very interesting thing about what Jesus said. The last sermon was all about, hey, if you do righteous, guess what? Some people are going to hate it. They're going to persecute you. They might even revile you or slander you, say nasty things about you that aren't true. Some might do that. But look what Jesus says next. He says, also, others will give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Think about that. You don't have the option to choose whether or not you should live righteously in public or in private. Jesus doesn't give us that option. He says, 
live righteously, do it in public, and some people will give glory to your Father who's in heaven. You're going to lead some people to worship God. And other people, yeah, they'll hate you. But Jesus makes it very clear. Just because they'll hate you doesn't mean you're supposed to take that light and hide it. Okay? This is so important, so foundational. You could take this sermon and say, this is going to set the tone for everything that we should do as disciples. You are supposed to be a disciple, not just privately, not just in your heart, but with your whole life. Out in the open, publicly, unashamed, not afraid, not concerned that maybe someone will ask you a question, but even inviting people to know what it is. That's what light does. That's what salt does. This is a big, big thing that Jesus is calling to us as disciples. Remember, that's what a Christian is. It's the disciple of Christ who's talking to us as disciples. And if our life doesn't match up, I want to start by thinking about that. I said three points. First point is a negative because salt is, is a warning to us. Right? The salt thing is a warning. The light thing is kind of an encouragement, so it's kind of a negative and a positive, and then a command at the end. So point number one is the negative. Let's get that through first. Okay, point number one, I love you. You're free to write this down. Don't lose your godly influence by sinning like the world. Now, it's kind of a long point, but I think that's what Jesus is getting at with the salt metaphor. Don't lose your godly influence by sinning like the world. For this salt to lose its saltiness literally means for the salt to become foolish. It's the word where we get moron from in Greek. Um, don't let your salt become a moronic salt. Right? Moronic salt just means that it's, it's impure. It's lost its taste. It doesn't, it doesn't do its thing anymore. Right? What are you as a disciple? What did God design you to be? Some of us are so just hungry to understand what our purpose is. Jesus tells you your purpose in two big statements. You're salt of the earth and you're light of the world. And there's not a difference between earth and world. He's just using those as synonymous parallelism, right? It's just like earth, world, same idea. You're salt, you're light. That's what you are in the world. That's what Jesus says you are. So that's what you should think of yourself as. That's my point. Don't lose your godly influence. Once a Christian, think about this, once a Christian acts like everyone else, once a Christian joins in with all the sin of everybody else in any particular group. Take a friend group, take a class, take a sports team, take a family, anything. Once that Christian is no longer pure or uh, a preserving agent, like holding back the sin, well, then they're not doing their job. They're not being salty. And here's the, here's the, the really hard question for you. If you've lost your Christian witness with somebody, how do you get it back? That's what Jesus is saying. He's actually saying, you really don't get it back. Once you've blown it, once everybody thinks you're a hypocrite, how do you like recover from that? If you're a real Christian, I, you might not be able to recover from that. You may have messed up the reputation so much that forever with those people, they'll say, I don't want to be a Christian because this person was a hypocrite. So I know that's a hard saying, but that's what Jesus is trying to say. He actually says it even stronger. He says, it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Like, what good is a Christian who doesn't act like a Christian? You're, you're, you're not helpful to the cause of Christ. In fact, you're counterproductive, right? Like, you understand this. Some of you are non-Christians, and you're like, yeah, that's, that's right. Like, I know a bunch of Christians who are hypocrites, and I don't want to be a Christian because they're a bunch of hypocrites, right? Can I tell you, not all Christians are hypocrites. Right? There's not a perfect Christian you'll ever meet, okay? So what Jesus is not saying is, that everything in your life will always be perfect and you'll never make a mistake. He's not saying that. But he is saying that he calls us 
to be pure and preserving. For example, have you ever had a Christian make you uncomfortable about something you're doing just by being there? They maybe didn't even have to say anything. It's just like uh, once they walked in the room, it's like, oh, I don't know if I should be doing that, right? But did they do anything wrong by showing up? No, not necessarily. But we all know people, I know people, right, who, who, who walk by and I, you know, straighten up a little bit, right? Because I don't want to be acting a fool with them, right? I don't want to be doing wrong while they're around. Right? That's the kind of influence that Jesus is saying disciples should have. That doesn't mean you have to domineer and say, I'm the police of everybody now. I'm the one who's saying if you're doing right or wrong. That's not what he's saying. He's saying your presence in places should be a good influence. Now, here's the test for you. If you think about your sports team, your family, all the, all the places that you are, are you actually, by just being there, holding back the sin? Or have you tried to bend over backwards to make people feel comfortable in their sin that they're like, oh, no, it's cool with that person, though? Oh, they don't care. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We do all those things that are wrong, but dude, they're cool. I know they're a Christian, but they, they don't care. If, if that's our relationship with the non-Christians in our life, listen to what Jesus just said. You are salt of the earth. And if salt has lost its saltiness, if it's become impure, if it's become not useful to preserve or to purify the world, if you're just as dirty as the rest of the world, you can't purify the world. Like it doesn't, it's obvious, right? Just like salt, it's obvious. That's, this is hard. I mean, there's a couple of presuppositions that he comes in with. Like, think about it. And some of you guys don't share these presuppositions. I want to tell you. So one of the things that Jesus comes into the statement saying is, the world is corrupt. The world needs to be preserved. Some of you might not have, you might not share that worldview right now, right? But Jesus does show in this analogy that the world is sinful and corrupt and that Christians in it should be helping the sin not take over. Like if you were to take Christians out or you were to take any salt out, what would happen to anything that salt's supposed to do. It would become more corrupt. It'd be corrupting faster, right? Um, so that's one idea that we need to have in our mind. Um, and the second idea is that you actually need to be in the world in order to be any of these two things. You cannot be salt of the earth in a salt container, right? What does salt do in a salt container? It's just with all the other salt. It, I don't know, it's just getting waiting, it's waiting to be used, correct? So here's the idea. Jesus presupposes that you as a disciple are going to be interacting with a bunch of non-disciples all the time. And this is where it's hard for some of you because all you do all the time is interact with disciples. Like it's just you and a bunch of other Christians. It's just salt on salt on salt on salt. Right? That's great, right? I hope that you're being salty even with the salt that you're around. But if you're not in the world in any way, if you have no connection, no relationship with any non-Christian, that's a problem. Like a big problem, right? And I'm not saying you can't have friends at church. I'm just saying you need to know people who are not saved. And a lot of that starts right here. Because right? I, I understand this, this, even this room is not all disciples of Christ. I know not all of you want to follow Christ, right? But I'm just telling those of you who are, who are disciples, are you in the world in any way? Like you need to be. That's the presupposition. And I say that because he's not commanding them to be in the world. He's presupposing that they are in the world. And my point is, you're not going to be good salt. You're not going to be good light unless you're in the world in some way. Some of you do this by uh, working in, in jobs. Some of you do this by going to school. Some of you do this by being on sports teams. And you're already there, right? But I just know that some of you have no relationships with any non-Christians. And everyone you talk to and all your best friends are all Christians. You can't really do this if that's the case. And some of it might not be your fault, right? 
but my point is, okay, if you want to be salt and light, you, you gotta you gotta make some relationships with people who are not disciples. That's you see what I'm saying? Like he presupposes that. He doesn't command that, but you need to know that. Here's a couple verses that might be helpful. James chapter 1, verse 27. James says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. And sometimes you, you scare by the word religion because people act like that word is a bad word. It's not a bad word, right? He says it's a good thing here. But religion is service of God. What kind of service of God is pure in his eyes? What does he like to see? He says, well, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, right? People who need help. To love people who need love. And, second thing, to keep oneself unstained from the world. So what kind of worship does God like? Well, he likes it when you love the people that need a lot of love, right? Whether that be orphans or widows or people in your life that need a lot of love. And the second thing, to keep oneself unstained from the world. Does that mean you never go in the world? No, because we just said you have to be in the world to be salt and light. You have to have some relationships with people who are not disciples. But what kind of service to God does God like? Well, he likes it when you love people who need love, and he likes it when you keep yourself unstained from the world that you don't sin in the same ways the world did. That's why I don't say that you look like the world, because you should dress like the world. If you dress like an Amish person, I don't think your salt and light's going to be very good, okay? Because uh, you're, you're a weirdo, right? You can wear your striped sweater to church. I know all of you. You can do that. You know, you're fitting in with everybody. That's great. I love it, right? No, no problem, right? You should wear what people wear, right? You should look normal. So I'm not saying you should look weird or do your hair weird so that everyone thinks you're weird, right? I'm not saying that. Jesus is not saying that. He's saying your actions and your attitudes should be righteous. And if they're righteous, it's just going to look different from everyone else. So that's why I say, that's why you wrote down sinning like the world, not doing what the world does. Because if that was the case, we'd miss the whole point of being salt and light. Another verse for you to write down. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 20 to 22. So a lot of twos. 2 Timothy 2, verse 20 to 22. Listen to this. Paul says, now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. So there are some things that you have in your house that are really valuable, right? There's vases, right? And there's toilets. They can both be made of porcelain, right? Have you ever thought about that, right? But you use them for different things. Oh, now I'm paying attention. Yes, okay. Some for honorable use, some for dishonorable use, okay? Therefore, verse 21, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So, it starts to make sense there at the end. He's saying, if you want to be a Christian that's actually used for God, if you're a Christian that's actually doing good in the world, well, then you need to cleanse yourself and stop committing the same sins that everybody else is committing. You need to stop talking in ways that's degrading to God. You need to stop using God's name in vain. Right? For a Christian, that should be inexcusable. Right? Absolutely wrong. Using profanity should be, it's off the table, obviously, because it's wrong. We don't want to do that. You shouldn't be joking in the same ways that everybody else jokes. Like, it's just wrong, right? And if you want verses for that, Ephesians 4 and 5 talk all about your speech and how you should not talk those same ways. Your attitudes shouldn't be selfish. There's a lot of selfish, even Christians, who just think like everybody else. Your thoughts are like everybody else, right? That's wrong, right? We don't want to do that. And now, Jesus is going to teach us what it means to be his disciple, for sure. We're going to get into all that. But that's what it means to kind of cleanse yourself. He gives more illustrations next. Not illustration, he applies it. This is 2 Timothy 2.22. 2 
two, 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 two. He says, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So run away from youthful passions, right? Whatever that looks like, pride, lust, arrogance, things that, you know, youths do more than old people and pursue love and faith, peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Um, If you want to be useful as a Christian, if you want to stand out, then you can't do all the things that everyone else does. You can't talk like them. You ha- and that's the question. Is that true of you right now? Speaking of worldly trends, there's a worldly trend that happened this week that I actually kind of appreciated. I thought it was pretty funny. Wives found out that their husbands think about the Roman Empire all the time. Do you see this? Do you see this? No, you didn't see it. So I'll, I'll just tell you about it. Uh, ladies, for some reason, don't think about the Roman Empire enough. Or maybe they think about it the appropriate amount. But, like, when's the last time you thought about the Roman Empire? I think about the Roman Empire every day. Every single day. I'm also, like, I study the New Testament every day, so I'm always thinking about, like, Paul and and Jail and the Romans, and I'm thinking about that all the time. I'm not, like, a, you know, historical nerd or anything. But I I think about the Roman Empire all the time. See an aqueduct? That's so cool. How much have they gotten it before? And then you think about the water and, yeah, whatever. Um. Well, I mean, they invented everything. Hey, ladies, here's your chance to think about the Roman Empire today. Can you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2? I want to give you a Roman Empire analogy. Here you go. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Let's look at this together. Starting in verse 14. You cannot read this verse without thinking of the Roman Empire. So, let's think about the Roman Empire. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. He says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Stop. We got to think about the Roman Empire to understand this, okay? What does triumphal procession look like? What does that mean? It's like, I don't know what that means. A parade, right? We're not talking about a WNBA parade, right? We're talking about a legit parade, okay? Like, so many people at this parade. Like, war hero, conquered people behind, right? That's the kind of parade we're talking about, okay? So he says, Thanks be to God that Christ is like the king. He leads us in this triumphal procession, this this parade with all these things that he's conquered. It's a show of his power, okay? And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. So it's like we're walking through this ancient Roman street where the king, the conqueror, is in front of us. And everywhere we go, people are literally smelling what's happening because in these ancient Roman parades, they would, you know, make a bunch of barbecue. It's like when you come out to True North and you smell the barbecue. It's like, well, there's an aroma there. That's what they would do. They would, they would burn the flesh of these animals, which is just cooking meat. It's just barbecuing, right? Not being weird. They're just barbecuing, and they're making all this sound and making all this noise. And guess what's happening? People are hearing it. People are smelling it. What are people doing? They're like walking out of their house to come check out what's going on. So Paul says... Here's what it's like to be a Christian. It's like Jesus is this conquering king. He's leading this parade. We're behind him. We're on his team. And what's happening is we're spreading this like aroma. We're making the sounds. We're making the smells. And everybody's coming and being attracted to see what's going on over there. That's what it means to be a Christian. God's doing something in the world. And the world peers in and says, what's going on over there? Look what he says next. He says, for we are the aroma of Christ, the smell of Christ. 
to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So Christians in the world are doing one of two things. Well, first of all, they're, they're spreading the aroma of Christ. They're telling people about Christ. They're acting like Christ. They're telling people, I live the way I live because of Jesus, because he forgave my sins. And you know, you can be forgiven too. What are you doing? You're spreading the aroma of Christ through your actions and through your words, correct? Now, what groups of people are you spreading that to? Two groups, those who are being saved and those who are perishing. So there are two kinds of people that you're going to interact with. Those who will see what you're doing, like Jesus says, and glorify your Father for your good works. People are going to be saved partially because of your good activities. They're going to see what you're doing, you're spreading the aroma of Christ, and they're going to say, I have interest in that. I want to know about that. And other people will see it, and yet they're perishing people. What does that mean? It means they're not going to be saved. So some of them, when they see the things that you're doing, if they're righteous, they're going to see your righteous deeds, and they're going to say, I hate that. I don't like that. I like my sin. Are you condemning my sin by being in the Roma of Christ? Well, yeah, absolutely. Because Jesus is spreading the aroma of Christ through us. Yes, your sin is bad. Yeah, it totally is. Is my lifestyle a rebuke to some people? Yes, it is, and it should be, because that's what it means to be salt of the earth. Then he goes on. He says, to one, a fragrance of, from death to death. Some people smell you, and you smell like death to them. And it's not because you, know, you don't wear deodorant, because you all wear deodorant, I hope. Uh, but that's what that sounds like to me, like a, a fragrance of from death to death, like you smell like you're dying, and it makes me want to die, right? So he's saying some people, that's how they think about you. They see your Christian behavior, and they're like, you stink. I don't like that, and I'm never going to be part of that from death to death. And to others, you are a fragrance from life to life. Like you're radiating the aroma of Christ, and people are like, that's life. I'm, I see what you're doing. I see the goodness in that. And then look at the question he asked next. Who is sufficient for these things? That's a great question. My point in teaching salt and light is not that you got to nail it and know everything about it now. Like, who's sufficient for these things? That, that is just a, a weighty responsibility that we have. We're not sufficient for those things. In Christ, we are. Christ is sufficient for those things. He's strong enough for this. But even when we think about that task, it's a big, weighty task. Salt and light. I started talking about this, but the salt is the negative. The light is the positive. Okay. Point number two is this positive thing we're supposed to do. In verses 14, 15, 16, Jesus says that light in the world shows people good works. So being light in the world can mean a lot of things, but I think the primary application of this is what Jesus says, good works. So you can write it down like this. Point number two, I want you to do righteous things fearlessly and publicly. Do righteous things fearlessly and publicly. Jesus says he's the light of the world. We act as lights like him. Our light, many theologians have said, is a reflected light. We're not lights on our own. We're lights because Jesus is the light. We read earlier in Isaiah 42, where 700 years before Jesus, God made a promise to the Israelites and says, I'm doing new things, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give for you, as a covenant for you people, a light to the Gentiles. Right? It's a promise that Jesus is going to come, be a light to not just the Jews, but to the whole world. Right? Light of the world, Gentile nations too. He says in Isaiah 42, 700 years before Jesus, I'm doing something new, and I tell you about it before I do it. That's what we just read in our scripture reading this morning. Jesus comes along and fulfills that. In Matthew chapter 4, Matthew says, hey, 
Jesus is the light who came to this region of Galilee, just like it's promised in Isaiah 9. Jesus is the light. In Luke 2, as people started talking about Jesus and understanding who he was, they said, this is the light to the world, the light to the Gentiles. Now, Jesus has a role for you. He says, I'm light of the world. Now, if you're my disciple, now you're light of the world too. You do what I do. Just like we studied last week, Jesus is a peacemaker. He calls us to be peacemakers. He's the light of the world. He did good work. Some people hated him for it. Some people were drawn to him. Some people hated him. He preached the truth. Some people loved it. Some people hated it. That's your job too if you're a disciple. You can't be a disciple and not engage in the things that Jesus calls us to. Reaching the world. Standing out as a light. So I said two things. Fearlessly and publicly. Fearlessly. One of the reasons... I think the biggest reason why you, this week, will be tempted not to apply the sermon. You'll hear it, perhaps you'll agree with some of it, and you might say, yeah, but I don't want to do that in front of people. I don't want to do it publicly. I might want some, I might want to do good. I know I should, but it's scary to me to do it publicly. The Bible has a phrase for this. Christians use it a lot. Uh, it comes from Proverbs twenty nine twenty five, where God's word says, the fear of man lays a snare. I want to think about that. Fear of man. That's one of the big reasons why many of you this week will want to be light, and you think, okay, I should do that good thing. But you might draw back. You might cover the light that you were about to do. You might cover it with a bushel because you have a fear of man. That means that you're so concerned about what everybody else thinks of you. Remember last year we had this key phrase in Sure North that made you repeat it a bunch of times? Freshmen don't know this, but our key phrase last year, I said a bunch of times, and we repeated it, and you yelled it out, other than come to church. We did say that a lot, right? That's what you're thinking, right? Do you remember the other one? Three words. Get over yourself. Do you remember that? Remember, like, multiple times? Get over yourself, okay? Get over yourself. That's a great theme. Like, write it in your yearbook. Get over yourself. That's a great, I don't know, non-biblical, it's an extra-biblical saying. That's my saying, not yours. Um, that's not, you know, or it can be yours. It's not Jesus. Jesus didn't say that. But get over yourself. What does that mean? that you stop having a fear of man. You stop saying, you know what? I'm going to make this calculation. I don't want to be light today because I might lose friends if I'm light in the world. They might not want to be with me. That's called a fear of man. You are afraid of people being embraced or rejected by them. Proverbs 29, 25 says, the fear of man lays a snare. You ever seen those bear traps that people step on and just like get someone's ankle? Right? He says the fear of man is like stepping into a bear trap. Like, it's going to hurt you, it's going to slow you down, it's not going to help you. It's a snare. It looks good, but it's, it's not good. The next part says, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Some of us will not be salt and light this week because we're afraid of people and we're not trusting God. What I'm trying to say is, stop being afraid of people, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. The fear of man is a snare. Some of you are right now ensnared, and you've thought about this. You're like, okay, I, I'm not salt. Where did that start from? A lot of you, because of a fear of man, because you have such a high desire for them to like you that you're compromising and doing things that you know you shouldn't. Like in the moment, you're like, oh, I shouldn't do that. But you, you just went along with it because you were afraid. What I'm telling you is let's correct that today. Let's get over ourselves. Let's not have a fear of man, and let's trust God instead. You're supposed to do it fearlessly and publicly. Here's why I say publicly. Because Jesus says, do these righteous things before others, that they may see them. I think it's very interesting that Jesus doesn't say, you should do all your righteous things in private. He says, if you do these righteous things, part of it is we want other people to see these righteous things. That, that gets complicated if you know the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Because Jesus sounds kind of like he's contradicting himself. Because he says here, do your righteous things 
so that people will see them and give glory to your Father. Do you know how Matthew chapter 6 starts, the first verse, Matthew 6, 1? He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before others in order that you may be seen by them. Okay? So he says, be careful. Because some of us are lights in the world, but the reason you're light in the world is because you just want everyone to praise you. So you might be resonating with the sermon until this point and think, oh, maybe that is the reason why I do good things. Others of you think, oh, yeah, don't practice your righteousness before others because you don't want to be seen by them. No, no, no. You've got to do all your Christian stuff privately. That's why I do all my Christian stuff privately. Well, you're disobedient to Matthew 5, 16, right? These, these verses go together. They're not contradictory. The point is you're supposed to do righteousness publicly for God, right? That's the next point. Point number three, as you shine as lights in the world, make sure you do those righteous things for God. You want to add another phrase? You can say, not for yourself. That's the idea. Make sure those righteous things that you do where you are salt and you are light is not because you have some, I don't know, superiority complex over everybody and you think you're just the greatest person. That, that's Matthew 6.1. That's doing your righteousness before others because you want to be seen. You want to be applauded. Don't do that. It's not what we're saying. Let your light shine before others. That's the only command in this text. You notice all the other things, Jesus makes statements. He just says, you're the salt of the earth, so be salt. You're light of the world. So we read, oh, we should be light in the world. So he says, so shine. That's the, that's the command, shine. Make sure you do those righteous things for God. Some of you hear that and you say, okay, make sure you do these things for God. And you miss the important word, righteous things. You should be doing righteous things for God. Righteous, what's good, what's pure. Some of us are just not thoughtful about what we do. So if I were to ask you, okay, in your friend group, can we, can we list like five things that you could do that would be righteous? That can be hard. Maybe start by thinking, okay, what are the sinful things that I can do? And let's start with thinking of the opposite, right? That's, that's one. You know, gossip is a sinful thing I could do with people, right? So what's the, the righteous alternative to gossip? Well, instead of speaking poorly of others, to make them look bad. Maybe speak highly of others, e even, you know, behind their back, so to speak, right? Not, not even to their face, right? Okay, that's righteous to encourage other people, to tell other people, you know, they, they've got this figured out. Have you noticed that they're doing really well? Have you noticed that they're really good at this? You know, like, to promote other people. But why? So that they'll promote you? Nope, that's the trap of Matthew 6.1. That's where he says, no, 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 don't do it so that you'll be praised. So you gotta get both of these things together. Righteous things, and for God. If you do righteous things for yourself, you'll be a hypocrite. If you do nothing for God, well then, then you're not righteous. See, see how this kind of feels like a balancing act a little bit? You gotta understand both at the same time. It's usually easier for us, especially when we grow up in church, to, to think, okay, I'm gonna do righteous things first. And that's how we think, right? And that's important and very good. But at the same time, if it's not also balanced with, make sure we're doing these righteous things for God, then you can just become a little, you know, little hypocrite, little Pharisee, right? And some of you, that's your, that's your testimony. You didn't become a Christian until you repented of being self-righteous. And you thought, I, I need to give this up. I need to stop worrying what other people think. I need to give up my Christian reputation and know that I just, I really need to follow Christ for the first time because I've never been doing it before. Because right? you need to do it for God. Yeah, I mean, if you're in Matthew 5, look at Matthew 6, verse 1. Let's just read it together. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. Jesus says, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. 
See, even both of these phrases, it's so interesting, the parallel. Like he says, do these things so people will praise your Father who is in heaven. And then Jesus says later, make sure you don't do it for yourself because then you'll get no reward from your Father who's in heaven. So even that concept, why do we do these good things? Why do we do them? For our Father who is in heaven. That would have been, to them, a radical statement of the closeness of relationship that we get to have with God. That, in fact, is extremely rare in the Old Testament. That people would say that God is my Father. They might have recognized God as King, God as Sovereign, God as Holy, but one thing they might not have recognized so clearly as we see in the New Testament is that God is Father of those who are his disciples. Why do we do the things that we do? Well, one of the reasons is so that our Father will get praise. Now, we don't live in a very honorable society. We don't live in a, like an honor-giving society. Maybe some of you, you think of your parents and they're like very strict, depends on the culture they come from, like very honor-oriented society. A lot of societies are like that. Ours is not so much like that. So we kind of miss in the reading what that means. To them, it was a little bit more clear. One of your goals as a son or as a daughter was to give honor to your parents. You wanted people to speak good of your parents because of the actions that you did. Now, some of your families, it is still like that, right? Your parents get praise from others because you're, you were obedient, you were kind, and, and it feels good as a father to hear that your kids are doing good things. Now, that's the motivation that Jesus puts into this doing good works. We just said, for God, it's kind of shorthand. You could say, for God, your father who loves you. We're doing it because we want God to be praised. Do you want God to be praised for saving you, for forgiving you, for giving you his word? Do you, have a, do you have a hunger for that, a care for that? Well, then he says, do righteous things so that God will get honor and praise. I think about my little kids. They don't do anything that's very good, uh, or they don't do much of anything. I guess Eden kind of runs around, and Jordan's cute, but people, like, compliment us for our kids, and sometimes it's funny because it's like, oh, they're really cute. It's like, thanks. Uh, yeah, we contributed to it, I suppose. Like, what are, you, are you saying that about? No, you're not saying it about me. It's just, you know, what are you trying to say, you know? Um, yeah, they, they are cute, right? It's really, it's, I know, I think they're cute too. Right? They're babies though. They don't do much good. But when they get older, right, I, I kind of want my kids to bring honor to me, right? Like, wouldn't you want your kids, I mean, think in the inverse. Do you want your kids to be dishonorable? And everyone's like, oh, that person's kids, they're the worst, right? That doesn't feel good, right? The problem is, if you think about the world, so many people in the world talk about Christians and say, they're the worst. They're the worst. In other words, God's kids, they're the worst behaved people. They're the meanest. They're the most exclusive. They, they, don't, they don't like other people. They don't love other people. They don't, they don't pray for others. Right? They're the worst. That's like the last thing I want to hear about my kids. I want people to say, oh, their kids are great, you know, because that's a good reflection on me. What you do, you realize, is a reflection on your Father who's in heaven. If you're a Christian, what you say, what you do, that's why some people say, we're representing Christ everywhere. That's true. It's another way of thinking about this. I'm just trying to use the language that Jesus says, of your Father who's in heaven. You are bringing honor or dishonor to your Father based on how you act this week. What you do in private, what you do in, in public. What you talk about, what your attitude is, just know that everything is either giving honor to God or... It's not giving anything to God, or it's giving dishonor to God, right? We have a privilege of having God as our Father, and he calls us to certain things. 
My point is, if our Father calls us to certain things, and he loves us, and he cares for us, and he's done everything for us, we owe it to him to do righteous because we want people to praise him. I want you to think about that this week. When you're thinking about righteous things, think, okay, I'm doing this because of God, my Father, who's in heaven. Let's pray that God would help us do this. Father, we do come to you knowing that you are good and you're righteous and you're pure and we want to be like you in our character and we know that we all have a long way to go. I just pray for us to be salt and light, in particular for us to avoid the corruption of the world by being pure in our own hearts first and then in our lives second. I pray that everyone here in True North who claims to be a disciple would this week stand out and they wouldn't be afraid They would stand out like salt, they'd stand out like light, and they'd make a good impact on the world. We know that you've called them to influence the public schools that are here, to influence the homeschool groups that are here, to influence the the teams and the families that you put them in. And I pray that they would be salt and light this week, that they'd avoid the sin, that they'd love the people that they interact with, and that their righteous behavior would just compel people to want to know you. Pray that you'd encourage them this week by seeing success and progress in this area. You know that sometimes it can be hard if we feel like it's failure after failure. So I pray that you would give our students success this week, that they would stand out, they wouldn't be caught in the snare of a fear of man, and you'd help them do it for you. We love you, and we want to honor and serve you with our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.